You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And we're in the same room. This is amazing. We're both in Cambridge, but it's the same Cambridge. The right Cambridge. Actually, not many people know how we record when we live in different continents, so we shouldn't reveal that. No, yeah. I mean, the private tunnel that we have dug underneath from from Heathrow to uh, Logan Airport and then meeting in the middle, it's all very complicated. Engendered by that terrible accident at the Cavendish Laboratory, which caused the wormhole. So, Neil, I wanted to take this opportunity when we're both in the same room in this amazing meat space. I wanted to talk a little bit about simulation today. And I know you have some great, very strong, passionate feelings. Yeah, so um, simulation, well, actually, it fits within a broader context of um, things that are going on in the community around simulation. So we're seeing a lot of, since the sort of success of AlphaGo and the ease of gameplay simulation, that seems to be like the mainstay of reinforcement learning that you build an environment simulation and you learn against that to create data because these deep reinforcement learning methods can be quite data hungry. What interests me about that, uh, it's it's not a new phenomenon. I think that the, I'm unsure to what extent this has been proven to work in reality. It's a sort of an accepted mantra in the field that this is going to help, but I, I'm not 100% sure that we're going to see that transfer. In the past, people have tried that and it's not transferred to reality but there is of course greater hope now because of the realism of the simulations but a thought that occurs to me about this is um it brings it so, the that field close um to something that's quite close to my heart which is being more explicit about your model and working in the context where you understand something about your system so going all the way back to um say Gauss, uh, when he was trying to find the orbit of Ceres and his uh, claim on the invention of least squares was maximum likelihood Gaussian fit. But he was fitting a mechanistic model based on Kepler's laws of the universe. So he was combining a mechanistic understanding of the universe with data. And that work is part of, with along with work of Laplace and others, Bernoulli and is all considered foundational work in statistics. But there's this then sort of interesting split where physics is focused more on the sort of models based on differential equations, which are mathematical abstractions, right? The universe isn't really operated by someone solving a differential equation. It's not like, oh, what weather shall I have to say? Let me just run Navier Stokes across <laughs> Britain. <laughs> Get it have a bounding box around it, right? Well, yeah. that's what the Met Office do, but that's <laughs> that's uh, not what actually happens in practice. And but of course, the, the, those sort of models are close to reality. Now, now I've been really passionately interested in this for a long time, and I started coming up with terminology that I think no one else probably uses, but I'm going to use it now anyway. That I say that that's like a strongly mechanistic model. Whereas the sort of models we use in machine learning often do contain understandings of how the universe works. So I always say, you know, the smoothness is a sort of, it actually is derived from understanding of physics. Like law of large numbers effects mean that I can't travel through wormholes from one Cambridge to another. Smoothness effects are sort of things we embed. So I kind of think if it's mechanistic at all, it's very weakly mechanistic. And we typically talk about that as a statistical or a data-driven model. Those two fields have sort of been separated for a long time. If you look at climate modeling, it tends to be sort of more mechanistic. They do use data, but they tend to use it to initialize things. Similar with weather, there's a large amount of... There are weather boys and so on and so forth, 
But what they try and do is set that the initial conditions to drive the model forward or satellite imagery and whatever else. And data-driven modeling, which is what we sort of do in machine learning, and we're only including sort of weaker knowledge. So also in convolutional neural networks, we're containing translation invariance, you know, in recurrent neural networks, information about sequences and the direction of time. Now, the interesting thing is the data-driven models work well in interpolation. So when you're going between two points you've seen before, where they tend to fail is an extrapolation. And extrapolation is sort of, well, what if this circumstance that I've never seen before were to happen? When that occurs, my feeling is you need more mechanism in there. And you are trying to convert. So like if we were just to sort of try and predict moon orbits by looking at data from the Earth orbits and not understand the Kepler's laws of planetary motion or the physics of gravity, we wouldn't be able to orbit the moon. But if you understand those laws of planetary motion, you can extrapolate. Extrapolation is no longer there because you understand how... The relationships, yeah. Yeah. To me, this is a massive challenge uh, and has been for a while and will continue to be in machine learning and AI because the truth is you're never, in most real-world situations, I don't think you're ever in a situation where you want to entirely rely on historic data. You want to rely on a sort of mechanistic understanding of what you're doing, like um, if you run a transportation network, you know, what the roads are like, you know, how travel, all these sort of things, you can start making predictions. Um, and, and the way people do that is by simulation, right? So the, so in science, you see a lot of simulation now, we've already mentioned sort of a climate science and uh, meteorology, but also in physics. When you have a non-analytic system, computational biology, it's enormous. And in, th- in fact, working in computational biology was the area that drew my attention to this. And a lot of these models are mechanistic in understanding in terms of, well, if this happens, that happens, or they might be differential equation-based. So discrete event simulations or solutions of systems of differential equations. The Met Office in the UK likes to sort of say famously that they have the same physics for doing climate as for weather. So when they're doing the, they predict the weather across the world, when they do that, they use the same physics model that they're using when they're making climate predictions 100 years into the future. They don't run the simulation in the same way, but they have the same physics. The the rules don't change. The weather doesn't become something else. So, you know, for me, AI is automated decision making, if it's anything, and making intelligent under whatever your definition of intelligent is, intelligent decisions. So including that sort of information in um, your modeling is an interesting challenge. Now, what, sorry, long-winded way of leading up to, what's going on in reinforcement learning now I find interesting because they're doing this, they're simulating, um, they're doing it sort of a little bit the other way around. They want a sort of intelligent navigation agent that exists in the real world, like a robot that plays tennis with you or something. And then they'd say, well, we're going to train it in simulation first and then we're going to deploy it in the real world because we, can, we need all this data and we get most of the data uh, from simulation. But if you look in this other area where people have these pre-existing models that they're interested in and they want to ask questions of, people have looked at the same question. And that's the domain of surrogate modeling or emulation or uncertainty quantification, where you have a model that you're interested in scientifically and you bring in a statistical model to emulate or act as a surrogate for your mechanistic model. This is often done with Gaussian processes, but other models are used as well. What interests me is that these two things are coming at the same thing from different ways. But what really interests me is that in that second domain, uncertainty quantification, uncertainty is key. So doubt 
as I, I wanna, I'm going to push this term, computational doubt. When you're doing this, uncertainty becomes very important because what you do in these situations is you run the simulation over a certain parameter set. You reconstruct the output of the simulation in emulation. This is what you do for those given inputs. So you sort of say, oh, what happens if we produce carbon dioxide at this rate and you know whatever other assumptions and the current temperature is this, and let's simulate what the temperature will be in 100 years. And you build a regression model that, that sort of tries to reconstruct that. And then you can try it for different carbon rates and effectively you're getting a mapping, which is a fit to the simulation. But what you do in practice then is you, instead of running the simulation in future, if you want an expectation, the simulation is very slow, you just decide to run the emulation. So you, you use it as a proxy for the simulation. Now, the danger in doing that is if you're running your um, emulation in a regime where it hasn't seen data. And so it's very important that it expresses doubt or uncertainty in that regime. I always say this, all PhD students out there, I think that the only characteristic in a PhD student that I really would struggle with is if they didn't express doubt when they didn't know something. Because if you've got a student and they're helping, you know, the great advantage of a student is they're helping you learn things. And if then they're confident when they don't know, then you can't trust anything they say. And it's the same sort of thing. If you've got a model that is confident about what the simulation is gonna say yeah. when it doesn't know, that's a disaster. Yeah. So, so a lot of that area becomes about your emulation expressing uncertainty when it's seeing stuff it's never seen before on its inputs. And, say, and in that case, you revert to the simulation. So in that case, the idea is you go back and you check the simulation again. Right. Now, what strikes me as interesting in um, a lot of this work in reinforcement learning is I don't think we've reached that point yet. I think what you're seeing is people training on simulations, but they don't include this aspect that if the, the, the model has seen... So map that back. Yes, yeah, thanks for saying emulation, because if you now view the reinforcement learning algorithm as an emulator, which in some sense it is, right? It's emulating what the relevant action is. I mean, it's not in a full sense. There's more stuff going on. But you can see that these things have a parallel. You then realize that it's critical when you map from the simulation to the real world, and this is also true in uncertainty quantification. You do an amount of how, you, how the real world differs. That you know when you don't know. So that when you emerge into the real world and you see a circumstance that you've never seen before in simulation, you should be careful about your actions. And I haven't seen any work on that. I may have missed it, but this is critical. And what really concerns me about the amount of work that's going on in simulation and all the promise people are making is until you start taking it into the real world and solve those problems, which I bet you, I bet you they're going to come up because whatever you're simulating in your fancy simulation, the real world will throw stuff at you that you have never seen before. That's where you want doubt. You want doubt in the system. And the right response to uncertainty in any intelligent system is to delay action, right? Actually, humans do this quite well. In fact, people in psychology measure uncertainty by the hesitancy on the answers, the proxy they use to measure that. So I, I really feel everyone's getting very excited about reinforcement learning. I, you know, maybe I'm the skeptic here, but I, I, I sort of think that part of me feels at one level, it's just control theory, right? It's just control. Any successful application of reinforcement learning is known as control. And the reason for that is, is in control, they care about guarantees. They care about a lot about proof of how the system will perform. In reinforcement learning, we tend to talk less about that. And there's lots of interesting things that current control can't do that reinforcement learning might do. But I'm really curious to see what happens to the promise of some of these things when you deploy them without uncertainty. And I should, of course, say 
there are people working on uh, systems which include uncertainty. I mean, off the top of my head, Carl Rasmussen, Mark Dysonroth, you know, people are also looking at this. But I just wanted to highlight the parallel between these two areas. Number one, this area of like, I've got a computation model of the world and I'm going to use machine learning to bootstrap that and improve my decision making and so on and so forth. That to me is a massively high impact area that is not being talked about anywhere near enough. In fact, I shouldn't talk about it because when the whole AI bubble bursts, I'm going to be hiding there in the field of uncertainty quantification. That's my little escape pod. Because it's filled with wonderful statisticians, engineers, applied mathematicians, top, top people. It, it actually, for me, has the feel of uh, early machine learning in that diversity of interesting people that are there in a relatively small community. But the parallel between the sort of questions that have arisen there, and then when you see this parallel between what people are doing in reinforcement learning, I think they call it data augmentation, right? And I sort of think, okay, data augmentation, right? But it actually exists. You know, surprisingly, a lot of these simplistic ideas that you come up with in machine learning, oh, well, I can do data augmentation and name it something new. People have thought about that in other fields. And surprisingly, when you look ahead to the consequences of doing that, they've also thought about some of the consequences. So, and, and I think lots of people have in, in machine learning too, but perhaps not uh, it's perhaps not as widely known about as, as it should be interesting stuff well we'll, we'll look for you in, in the next ai winter in your hibernation cave no, don't come look for me i'm gonna be it's gonna be bears grumpy bears in the cave growling at anyone who comes in <laughs> fantastic well we'll have more about simulations and more about reinforcement learning on our website thetalkingmachines.com So, Neil, our listener question this week is about the update to the Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct that the Association for Computing Machinery has just put out. And the question was essentially, what is it? What's been the update? And they have updated their Code of Ethics for the first time since 1992. And that's really fascinating to me because it kind of includes, I don't know, you know, the internet and huge leaps and bounds in our abilities and capabilities in this field. And it reads to me, you can read it on their website, acm.org slash Code of Ethics, and we'll also have a link to it posted on our website. It reads to me very closely like a lot of other professional codes of ethics, like the Hippocratic Oath, or there's the Ceremony of the Calling of an Engineer in Canada, where they give you the iron ring supposedly made from the material of the bridge that collapsed twice and killed a bunch of people. And first of all, it says starts off with avoid harm. And I think that this is really fascinating that we're having some formal thinking around what are the professional ethics that maybe this field and, and all the other fields that are involved in computer science should be thinking about. It's a super important area and so hard. I mean, because I guess in some sense, when I think of, and maybe I'm naive and optimistic, but I think it's kind of rare that people are actively going around, well, maybe it's not rare. There's a lot of people trying to do good and causing harm as a side effect. I mean, if we think of, uh, for example, the way we've seen all the pros and cons of, say, social media and something like that. I don't think that the people who are leading 
those companies are actively trying to cause harm. They had a vision, maybe in retrospect, we think it was a slightly naive vision, but they certainly had a vision for, oh, well, if we all just understood each other better, the world would be a happier place. That's kind of an optimistic view of humanity. Exactly. I mean, the fundamental assumptions seem to be like, if we can communicate more, wouldn't things be better? Wouldn't we understand each other better? The dystopian view is, oh, if we understand each other better, oh, we can exploit each other more. Exactly. And history does tell us that, that at some point, I don't know if I've mentioned on the show, that Laplace writes this thing in his philosophical essay on probabilities, which is about expectations and he sort of says look now we understand the nature of chance then then games of chance that have odds that are set against the player will be seen as like a multitude of evils or something like that yeah something like that so meaning like any game i play where in expectation i'm going to lose he says that'll be seen as evil and we'll stop doing it well you know most things in society i mean like in the uk there was these things called fixed odds still are fixed odds betting machines, which you know you're going to lose money on average because they're programmed to cause you to. So we didn't see what he expected. We saw the opposite, which is people use those mechanisms to exploit our own, which is unfortunate, but... Because we're overly optimistic with those things, right? You see you see it not as the rules are set against you, even though you know coming into that situation that they are, you see an opportunity for great, great chance, right? Well, there's an asymmetry of knowledge, isn't there? Right. And I think that that perhaps maps back onto this. You know, I've spoken about this idea I sometimes talk about of embodiment factors, about how we're information bandwidth constrained. And because of that, you have this asymmetry of knowledge that in that case is that you're exploiting, in, in most forms of betting, the bookmaker is exploiting their, to some extent, of course, their odds are against you anyway, their greater knowledge of the circumstances than you. And I think we've seen that wherever that people can exploit that i think that they will and i think one of the things that um troubles me a little bit about the fake news debate is it's it's to me missing the more fundamental point of the asymmetry of knowledge it's sort of saying oh fake news we need to deal with fake news i think it's fake news is a symptom of the asymmetry of knowledge and the ex and exploitation of sort of little groups which is also part of the asymmetry of knowledge that you can do that rather than the problem. And I think that even if you squash fake news, you're going to see... Right. Yeah. And thinking of these problems as something that's new, B propaganda, disinformation, these are not like new and inventive things. And, you know, we have all sorts of ways of thinking about them and trying to avoid them and trying to instill instill in people views of them that, you know, or try to downplay them or try to change them a little bit. And I think we need to sort of return to the idea that these these questions these things are not new they're not novel and we can handle them in ways that we've handled them before like having codes of ethics that are simply like reminders around what professional what your professional responsibilities are and what the responsibilities of the field are and things like that yeah and i think that that's um it's great to see that people are thinking about these and, and things like respect privacy and honor confidentiality are in there i think that the other thing is how it affects an individual computing professional in the decisions they're making because we also know that the way we make things efficient in society is by abstracting them and sort of removing the sort of downstream not well removing the downstream consequences of actions from where the action is being taken which is helps perhaps in making things more efficient but also makes them impersonal diffuses responsibility diffuses um yeah whether it actually technically diffuses responsibility from a legal perspective i think that's another question but in some sense i guess when we see 
you know, why, why do people worry about remote drones more than, say, pilots flying uh, a mission? And I think that most people would accept it's because if a pilot's in the battlefield, they have sort of skin in the game in some sense, right? So they're alerted more towards the personal interaction. And of course, this isn't an important example, but, but what, not most of us won't be faced with that. But when you're making a decision around your implementation of code, you're often removed from the individuals who that decision may affect. So I think a really interesting question is, how do you make these rules practical? Because it won't be enough for computer science degrees to sort of say, now take a course on ethics, where a philosopher talks about the trolley problem. So just imagine in the internet company you're working at that you have an opportunity to throw a fat man off a bridge in front of a trolley, should you? I mean, bears no relation to... And, and, and actually, one of the things I worry about is, is the extent to which those ethical discussions exist and substitute for the, the, the real problems, which are a little bit more complex. So sometimes I use... Because people love to talk about the trolley problem when they talk about driverless cars. They say, oh, it's driverless cars. It's the trolley problem. I think there's very good reasons why you immediately see how... I mean, th those examples, which are actually in a paper about abortion from the 1970s, I think it's well worth reading that paper because they're very well used in that, the, the, the series of trolley problems, the, the in initial trolley problem, I can't remember the paper, but the, the series of trolley problems about throwing the fat man off the bridge are in this paper from... 1970s in the sort of Roe versus Wade era. They're used quite well there, but I don't think that they're very helpful in the sort of ethical dilemmas we face today. So sometimes, so when people talk about the trolley problem, then I often bring up the, the one of, and they do, in the paper it says it's a fat man because he has to be heavier than you to displace the trolley, uh, to deflect it from the track. And I sort of say, well, you know, just imagine yourself explaining to a judge afterwards what you did. You know, people, people, are, people say, oh, why is that not the same as the switch example? Right. Well, actually, it's quite easy to start thinking about it and say, explain to a judge why you threw a man off a bridge during this moment when a runaway trolley... And it just makes no sense. It's a weird compartmentalization of a very, very complex situation. And no one would ever even think about think throwing a person off a bridge to stop a trolley. The switch one where you just pull a switch, okay, I, I can see why people think, that you, because it's a deterministic system. Right. Now, in the throwing the man off the bridge, not only are you, it's a totally uncertain system and, and all sorts of crazy things. It's, it's much more, um, it's compartmentalized as a simple decision, but in reality, these things are much more complex. Now, the example I prefer to talk about in, say, autonomous vehicles is, imagine, okay, so we, we can have driverless cars, and if I say on average they're going to, kill less people which is something people say it that's we don't have any proof that that's going to be the case but let's say we somehow knew that so this is another artificial constraint of the type that ethical philosophers like to impose so let's use that then imagine that we can guarantee that it will kill less people on average fine now um what if we when we deploy driverless cars they kill less people on average but they kill everyone they kill is a pedestrian or everyone they kill is a cyclist or everyone they kill is a child and maybe i don't know we could even there's two vari variations they could kill m more children than they were killing before or more cyclists or more pedestrians or they could kill less but they're still killing 100 percent. an outsized impact on a certain class an outsized impact on a certain class which isn't even currently necessarily a prohibitive discrimination class if it had been a certain gender or a certain race that would have been prohibited 
Yeah, if we take cyclists and assume cyclists are just drawn across the population. By the way, when I raise this example, you'd be surprised at how many people, oh, cyclists, they don't matter. Hey, it's, that's why I didn't start with cyclists, because probably maybe some of our listeners... Because children are more important than cyclists. They're the future. So when you take... I think that that's an interesting ethical dilemma, right? That, that you're actually... Maybe you're doing good on the whole, but maybe you've now introduced... Now, I think that's a toughie. I think that's a real toughie, and I, I, I don't think there's easy answers to that. And that's a complexity of the sort of thing we're doing, because actually an individual engineer may make a change without thinking about the downstream consequences that affects quite a large section of society. Not that we've got driverless cars out there. Even for things that we're just deploying today, people listening to this podcast will be able to affect systems that when they ship their code, which can happen within a matter of a week after writing the code, have a direct effect on hundreds of millions of people. Maybe not on what in the GDPR would be a significant decision, yeah. but still. I mean, maybe not killing them like a driverless car might, but still. And this is pretty complex, I think. Much more complex than Ethics 101 exactly. teaches you. And so if we have more thinking around applications of extrapolating the trolley problem and bringing it beyond just, oh, so sir, you're telling me that you pushed this man to his death because you thought that it would save this trolley full of people. You are still a murderer. Great. If we have some sort of thinking around applications and what that actually means, then I think that that's a, a step forward. And I think that the ACM is, is taking that initial leap. And they, they spent this a two-year process in reviewing these rules and talking to lots of people and thinking about, you know, taking it from the totally theoretical into, you know, into the workspace, which I think is a... Which is vital because... And I think that's got to be an ongoing debate. And I think that we should all be thinking of practical examples. I mean, I personally try and... When I think of something like the trolley problem that I think derail, ironically derails the conversation, in a meta way, you need to throw uh, something onto the track to derail the... I'm going to push this metaphor onto your example, Neil, and we're going to sacrifice... I have a larger metaphor that will derail your metaphor. That's right, we all need... So we need a fat metaphor on the bridge that will derail the trolley problem and steer the trolley towards, steer the debate. Sorry, derail the trolley problem, steer the debate in a way that actually helps us worry about the real problems that we're facing. Because the other thing is we all want to create, right? We all want to create and we're all excited about our creations. And there is a naivety to all sort of scientists and people who want to create because you're sort of, um, you're excited about what you're going to do. I think sometimes unfairly you're still pointed at. It's like not everyone is working on Frankenstein, right? You know, just because people have a slight naivety. But so sometimes, you know, we have to be careful with the balanced debate. But at the same time, I very much believe the onus is on software engineer, scientists, machine learning scientists, people to, to think about what the uh, downstream effect of what they're doing is because they make it better. You know, just make it what you're doing better, yeah. actually. Do a good job. So definitely. I think that just some, some practical thinking around these issues that up until now have been trolley problem sort of shunted into the area of the trolley problem, if I may, right? Just like finding some some applications and some real world ways to think about these things is only going to um, help us to address them faster. Well, we will have a link to the ACM's Code of Ethics on our website. And additionally, we'll have a link to the problem of abortion and the doctrine of the double effect, which is by Philip Foote, which is the paper we referenced earlier. And that'll all be on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And if you've got a question, you can tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS or email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. 
This week's guest on Talking Machines is Professor Michael Jordan. He's a professor at Berkeley University in California, and we asked him the first question that we ask all of our guests, which is, how did you get where you are? Well, I took an Uber from the other conference <laughs> over to here. Yeah, I mean, I'm old enough to have kind of worked on all sorts of problems. Um, I'm interested in anything having to do with algorithms and stochastics and learning and optimization and um, somehow, uh, you know, building systems that use data to make life better. And you did your undergraduate work in Arizona, I believe, is that correct? Um, let's see. I don't even remember at this point. No, undergraduate was in Louisiana. So I did that because that's where I grew up, partly. Mm -hmm. And so I just went to a local place around there and didn't get a particularly good education, but I had fun. <laughs> and then I went a uh, sequence of progressively better and better places. It was Arizona, and then it was UCSD, which was great. And then uh, UMass Amherst, a postdoc, uh, MIT as a professor. And then I moved after about 10 years to be in an environment where there's more statistics and probability, and that was um, that was Berkeley. So I've stayed there ever since. And you also work in around computational biology, yes? Is that correct? Yeah. I, I, when I went to Berkeley, it was mostly to do statistics and computer science and more of the math side of things. And uh, as much as I enjoyed that, I kind of found myself missing scientific issues. And so I... I thought about an area I'd like to learn more about and where the tools I knew about might be deployed, and that uh, was clearly molecular biology. Uh, it was moving, it move, is moving very fast, and uh, I kind of, that was appealing to me. The scientific areas I'd been interested in before were neuroscience and cognitive science, and they are great areas, no question, but they're the areas for the next few hundred years, I think, and they move slowly, if not glacially. And, um, and so in my short lifetime, I, I just figured I better move into something moving faster, and molecular biology was definitely it. So tons of data, tons of interesting measurements, and tons of phenomena, and it's just uh, you know, invigorating. So I don't have time to spend all my time on it, but I do always try to keep alive to it and what's happening, and uh, we'll return to it. Yeah, there's a flood of applications and interest in life sciences these days. How, how have you seen the sort of intersection of the two fields change? Well, they're huge fields, and so I don't really think there's one intersection. There's going to be all kinds of different ones, but... Just the ability to do genetics at, at scale and kind of more subpopulation-oriented genetics depends on all the data that you can get. You can test old models, but you can develop them further. And then there's genomic sorts of things, which are a whole different sphere of application for things like ca cancer, understanding it, you can understand the genomic basis of it. Then there's all the annotations on genomes. You can start to get data of that. Then there's single-cell kind of activity, um, all the things you can measure in, inside of a single cell, including down to the level of single molecules. And so if you're measuring at the level of single molecules, it's, you know, a sub-resolution microscopy, and that's very data-oriented and inverse problem-oriented. And then proteins themselves, you know, have energies and fold in various ways. So all, all the spectrum and are all about uh, data and inferences and um, trying to relate it to observable phenomena at some level. You know, I, I think of myself mostly as a statistician, but one who appreciates, uh, you know, not just appreciates, but as a computer scientist as well and algorithmic things. So... To me, wherever you can get data and, and focus on what inference you're trying to make and just target that problem and make scientific progress and ideally then build a system that does it, you know, regularly and repeatedly, that's that's what I find interesting. Nice. Yeah. And recently you published a blog post on, on Medium, which was talking about, I think, one of the things that I found really interesting is the idea of sort of asking for a more rigorous approach to data science and sort of thinking about it as a new form of perhaps engineering. Yeah, I'd say those two things are somewhat different. I mean, I, people associate me with rigor and that's all great and well and good. But I don't think I'm focused on this to have more rigor, per se, because that, that can stultify a field. So I, I don't think that's my focus so much. You know, rather, it's let's, let's be robust and let's be real to the fact that our algorithms work in very narrow situations and that they need to be part of a bigger system. 
and there needs to be uh, you know economic principles brought to bear and and um, you know rarely is we're designing a, uh, designing a single agent to, to operate in some little simple environment but rather there's many many agents which includes other smart humans and not smart entities and so on and the whole system has got to be developed so I'm not sure I call it rigor. I just call it a heavy dose of reality. And so, yeah, I think of this somewhat like the development of something like chemical engineering or civil engineering, where there were primitive principles that people had, you know, say chemistry, physics, mechanics, and so on. Not even primitive, but uh, they weren't yet kind of engineering. And so you needed to develop actual principles to deploy those things. So if you, you, you could look at electromagnetism, you had Maxwell's equations. In some ways, you were done. But, you know, whole ideas of, you know, how you build circuits and how you do imp what the concept of an impedance, for example, had to be developed so you could right. start to build bigger things and have them be understood and be reliable and, and, and so on. And so those that took decades in each of those fields, you know, chemical engineering, yeah. being able to understand the underlying chemistry was one thing, but being able to put them in big, large scale factories uh, with pipes that carry things and everything came out the way you hoped it would and it wouldn't, didn't explode and... Uh, <laughs> And you could just dial it in and build factories wherever you wanted for whatever purpose. Uh, and then you had to face all the externalities that you created pollution and, you know, you had to worry about all the input and output of the factories and, and so on. You had to develop systems at scale to do those things. And so I think we're in the same situation here. We're using data and learning and people's interests and people's preferences and proclivities. We're trying to build systems that service them and work in, in various environments. Data flows. And data uh, can be stale, and, and there's all kinds of, really, the pipes are important to how you make sure the right data is at the right place at the right time. And so there's just tons of issues that maybe you call, the, I don't know if they're rigorous, but they're just kind of a heavy dose of reality. Um, so, yes, I do believe what we're seeing now is not the emergence of AI. We're not, we don't know what intelligence is yet, I believe. I don't think we have a clue. Our, our systems are just, you know, taking in data and doing an interpolation through the data. That's fine, but I wouldn't call that intelligence. So you could use it to mimic intelligence. Mm -hmm. So uh, calling it intelligence, uh, you know, other few people might find that the appropriate language. I don't, but I don't want to just be a negative, you know, no, that's not good. You shouldn't do that. Uh, rather, I have a positive message, which is that if you're going to build systems that behave in the world at scale, that are real systems that have many, many pieces to them and multiple agents and multiple desiderata and so on, then that is a piece of engineering. And it's not necessary to build into it intelligence. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be that every agent is in any, in any way intelligent. Right. So an economic system that brings food into a city, it does an amazingly intelligent thing. It has the right food at all the restaurants and all the places. But each individual decision, someone's saying, ah, I'm going to bring lettuce into that part of town. You know, it's not necessarily particularly intelligent. It's local. And, and, and similarly here, you don't, it's not necessary or sufficient to have each agent be intelligent for the overall system to be intelligent. So we're focusing too much on that. The agent has got to be autonomous and intelligent when that's not really the overall goal. The overall system should be intelligent. And again, we don't know really what that means, but things like market medicines and the learning are certainly part of the story. So that was my overall real message was that, in fact, most of the progress has not been on AI in the sense of imitating humans. Rather, it's been on assisting humans, what we call IA. And what's emerging is this kind of broader systems meet markets, meets data, meets humans which is, again, very much not the classical AI spirit of imitating a human, but it is part of what we're really doing when we look at uh, what society is kind of expecting us to do. So, so talk a little bit more about the language that you would like to see used around this. You, have, you mentioned um, IA. What, what words should we be using to sort well, of... Well, I, 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 first of all, I'm not a PR person, and I think a lot of this was just PR, frankly. So there was machine learning, uh, which is a perfectly fine kind of sober terminology, 
it is about systems that learn and it's machines often. So, you know, we, and, and at some point, um, you know, things like neural nets were working better and people said, well, we, you know, we have machine learning. That's fine. Although we had machine learning 30 years before. I mean, the, like I emphasized in the, in the op-ed, Amazon was doing fraud detection and, um, and supply chain modeling and, you know, recommendation systems at scale, all with machine learning and all, you know, serving billion dollar industry sort of things. So that was machine learning. It just wasn't tackling a particular problem, which is say computer vision or speech that people think of as a sign of intelligence. But it was machine learning really done, done real. So we had machine learning, but now people will say, oh yeah, we have machine learning even more so. And it wasn't enough just to call it machine learning. Right. Somebody, some PR person somewhere felt they had to call it AI. And as soon as they did, A, it's not being really honest because we don't know what intelligence is yet. And so giving that name to it was not, it was a nice aspiration that this could be used to understand intelligence, but it's not real. It's not what we really have. And then B, it made too many people think, oh, the real goal is to build an autonomous, autonomous agent. We hearken back to the old goals. Mm -hmm. That's not what the real goal is in my mind. Yeah. So that language, that, I resist that language, that transition to AI. Again, I've lost the argument. Everyone is using it. But I think it's just important that someone stand up and say it's, it's a bit dishonest. And it, uh, it's, it sends our minds heading in all the wrong directions, leading as many of the wrong arguments and so on, which we've seen so much of. Yeah. So I wish that PR stunt hadn't been done. So I, I, I hope that, you know, either eventually the language, just like most words, they, they're, they're, they're the wrong word in the beginning, and then they just kind of fade. But, um, you know, data science was another kind of boring sounding, not a PR word, but it was used by mostly industry to describe a certain skill set. And it brought together database people with machine learning statistics people. That was all for the good. But again, suddenly we've got this other terminology. So I, I don't have a particular preferred terminology. I tend to say statistics or data science or, or machine learning, depending on kind of the audience or control theory or, you know, system identification or whatever. And those are perfectly fine terminologies for you know, decades. And I won't say AI, <laughs> at least I probably won't, I hope I won't, <laughs> until we really have something that to convinces to me that it is something more than just, you know, pattern recognition and, and, um, and random search, which is what we really basically currently have. It's gotten synergized, exactly as you say. It's gotten sort of PRified, and it no longer means a specific definition. It just sort of becomes a, a wash of whatever that can be thrown into the same bucket. It's a wash of whatever. That's one way of saying it. I, I like to say that it's also, um, when you don't understand what you're talking about, you can just throw it in there. So it's a wild card. So I call it an intellectual wild card. Yeah. And, and I do believe a lot of our dialogue that you hear when, you know, when some of our CEOs of big companies go in front of Congress, they will use AI as an intellectual wild card. When they don't really have a better answer, they don't really know how to think about or solve the problem. They just say AI will do it. Uh, we will fix it with AI. Right. And that basically is it just a, it's, it's a wild card for I don't know. And again, I don't like that. I think that's not quite, that's not honest to, to use a term, uh, you know, it's a seemingly technical terminology in that way. Talk to me more about the externalities you see from building the quote-unquote factory and making sure that the pipes run correctly. Oh, well, there's tons of them. I and mean, many of them other people have been talking about. I just don't use that term. But, you know, fairness is, is an externality that if you if you take in data and you treat it, uh, you just treat it with good old-fashioned least squares, uh, you will have an externality, which is that some groups, some sub-objects will be untreated unfairly. Another one, which I emphasized in my uh, blog, was provenance, which uh, um, leads to... You know, whenever you collect data in one place at one time, you're going to probably use it in a different place in a different time in a different way. If you don't somehow take that into account, you will have an externality, which is that you will have actually treated the people for whom the inference or decisions be made wrongly. Uh, they're, be, they're being treated as if they were the older group. 
whenever you optimize for one group, you can have a bad effect on another group. It's mm -hmm. kind of, an, in some sense, an externality. And those are examples of something that sound pretty dull in some ways. You know, one of them, you have to kind of just think about the constraints on the system so that it doesn't give, you know, misleading or unfair results. The other one, make sure you think about the relevance of the data. Um, but that's, those were all the challenges really in her. What does it mean the data is relevant? And how do you build a system that is able to understand that it's relevant? And if it's not relevant, raise a flag or shift it in some sense so it becomes more relevant and, and, and do that reliably and repeatedly. That, those are just major challenges there to be faced. And that, that's the kind of thing that, yes, that does arise when you deploy a system in the real world. Any of the current working systems for things, even things like the classical human imitative, you know, vision, speech, and natural language, people are aware that when you try them in a different domain than you train them in, they don't work. And, you know, that's part of the overall problem. But it's a bigger problem than that, which is that any system's going to have this transfer problem. And it's going to be one that you don't know a priori how to do the transfer because, you know, you're always making a new inference that's, that you didn't think about when you collected the data. And you have to kind of figure that out as you go. Uh, and then there's, um, you know, market mechanisms that if I make an optimization decision in one situation, it may be correlated with one I'm making in another situation. There might be a shared resource that's, that's scarce. Mm -hmm. And so I will have a, con a congestion or a conflict. And so that has got to be taken into account as well when you build a real system that really gets deployed in the world. So I think a lot of the people who've done this in the context of companies, there's been a, an alliance between IT companies and machine learning. And most of those companies are not focused on real world phenomena. They're focused on the virtual world. They're trying to provide a service. So it'd be it search or be it social networks. It was just, you know, really mostly in the virtual world. And so machine learning just became an easy add-on. You, you know, you have data in the virtual world and you can now do, do some analysis of the data and make it the service seem better. But you know, the, the leap that's been made is that I go from search or social networks to AI writ large. In other words, I have something like an avatar who's super intelligent. The system knows everything about me or can infer things about me. And that's fine. I don't want to denigrate that kind of activity, but it's just be, it's taken hold. That's the, that's the only goal is to build an AI entity that makes those kind of entities you know, better. Uh, whereas if you're working in a company that has a foot in the real world, take Amazon, you're trying to ship goods around and trying to make sure everybody has the right goods at the right time and you're doing that scales of billions, then you have to worry about prices and you have to worry about supply chains and have to worry about fairness and, and so on and so forth from the get-go and fraud and so on. So then machine learning becomes a much broader enterprise rather than this classical human imitative enterprise. So it's not so, so hard to see this, I think, if you you know pay attention to the bigger scope of what's, what has been done for the last... 30 or 40 years. Yeah. And I just, I think I wrote the op-ed just to kind of call attention to some of the younger people that uh, a lot of the dialogue you see now is not paying attention to that whole bigger scope. It's just saying, oh, we've got a certain capability and vision or speech, bang, we can solve all the world's problems. And uh, we can't, not yet. We have to work on all these things. So what would you like the first year graduate student who reads that post to sort of take away that they can bring into their actual work? It's a sort of memento that they can use to help them assess questions or think about something, whether or not something is interesting enough to pursue? Well, interesting enough to pursue is, is, is you get that by mentorship, working with real people and kind of, in, you know, being engaged in a community. I, I just have in mind in that blog post, not so much the here's how you get trained, but I guess I would just counsel people who read it. It's partly to, I, the last phrase of it has somebody to diminish the hype. Um, I think this area is unusual in that it's a technical area that works on mathematical problems and you know, it's, a, it's an engineering field, but it tends to have its results published on the front page of the New York Times. And it tends to you know, do demos that's you know, huge striking demos that, uh, for which huge PR is generated. And somehow that's not quite right. 
Somehow most other fields I'm aware of don't do that. They use sober names for things like control theorists or, uh, you know, financial people and so on. And they make the world go uh, without having all their results trumpeted on the front page of the New York Times. So, you know, please, young people, just think of yourself as good old fashioned engineers trying to develop a serious discipline that's elegant and works and and don't feel that you have to do big PR stunts uh, to make this field go. Maybe that's maybe that was needed, but um, I, I want to resist that as kind of the st style of, of the field. Uh, I, and I would again, if you want to call it rigor, I don't know, but I, I you know, take advantage of the mathematical frameworks around you. You know, I, I'm personally now learning a lot more about economics because I think this markets perspective on how learning and recommendations meet markets is really important. So I'm just kind of going back and making sure I learn more and study, you know, differential game theory or whatever. And I've been doing that throughout my career, kind of learn the. So if you haven't kind of realized that statistics is full of principles and concepts that, you know, cover essentially all of the machine learning concepts, you should learn that. And you shouldn't denigrate statistics as just logistic regression or a particular right. or linear regression. It is a vast scope of ideas. Uh, and I don't know of any ideas of machine learning that really go outside of that framework. So learn the, that framework, broadly speaking, learn some economics, learn some control theory and learn some of the social sciences, learn the things that are kind of around what you do and you know, treat your overall effort as part of a big network of ideas and not just take a one single hobby horse and go hit every, every problem with that hobby horse. So let's talk about the, the ideas that are in your group right now. You've, you have amazing stuff has come out of your group, Leighton Deerschalet Allocation, Barbara Engelhart, David Bly. Yeah. What are you excited about now? What do you have going on? Um, so I, first of all, love students. David Bly and Barbara Engelhart are two people I'm very proud of. Um, and uh, there are many others. You know, often what I try to do is find my own biases about what's interesting and important. As you kind of heard, I have my own opinions. And I try to infect students with that. And I try to infect them with some of the relevant ideas. And then hopefully they start to, you know, their brain comes alive and they start to do things. And then I help them craft and shape those ideas. So I really love that. Yeah, so right now I think my focus is, first of all, became more theoretical several years ago, partly because I saw the full field drifting to be more empirical, which again is totally fine. But I wanted a bit of a counterweight to that, that um, especially you sort of look at distributed and asynchronous systems and um, simple systems that have sampling patterns from statistical inference. You put all that together, it becomes a bit complicated and you still want to give some guarantees that things work mm -hmm. and, you know, highly distributed, highly asynchronous. And so that's been that was my focus for a little while. Still is. But, you know, proving real theorems about what happens when you have distributed or asynchronous processing. Right now, though, it's I think it's gone more to the direction of what if you're trying to use data to not make just a single decision or a sequence of decisions? That's what I think most machine learning is focused on. But rather, you're using data to make a interlinked system of decisions. You're trying to maybe make, you know, 100,000 decisions simultaneously, more or less. So where does that arise? Well, all over the place. You know, if you're doing a transportation system, it's not enough just to tell one car how to get down the road. You need to think about all the cars. If you give them all the same recommendation, you'll get congestion. And, and, and so you think about the system of cars. But even like medical diagnostics, it really isn't just your doctor or your AI agent sitting there telling you what to do or looking at you. And it, it's really all the data was collected on all humans kind of like you and are all conditions and looking at your condition and putting that all together. And then as soon as you learn something, having that transfer to everybody else and having every doctor kind of learn from every other doctor and, and every system learn from every system. So... It's an interlocked set of decisions. So I, you know, right in this very moment, you know, there's a hundred thousand people in, you know, various operating rooms, and somehow that's an interlinked system. If you kind of decide here's the right way to do it in one place, right. and, and 
same thing in another place there could be some correlation between those and they they, they you know you might have a really bad day uh, but you know the financial system of course is full of multi making huge numbers of simultaneous decisions and how the consequences for that and i could go on so I, i'd think most systems are like this and so this focus on the autonomous agent which focuses on the one decision at a time or a sequence is again misplaced for emerging problems all right, so one side of how do you make simultaneous decisions is what you, you might call the statistical side, which is that, you know, false discovery rate captures this, but some notion that I want the overall fraction of my bad decisions to be small. Out of all my decisions I made, I made a certain number of discoveries today. I want some, you know, fi only 5% of them to be false discoveries, and I want to do that on average. So that's a field I'm very interested in, and I've, I've had a wonderful postdoc, Aditya Ramdas, who's a world expert on that, and has brought th those ideas into my group. And we've done a whole bunch of papers on that that I'm quite fond of. So doing them on graphs when they're not independent hypotheses and kind of making them more, you know, in some sense, more machine learning. The other side of, of uh, multiple decision making is when, again, you do it in a, in a linked way and there's a, there's a scarcity of resource. Mm -hmm. So if you're building a recommendation system, the classical recommendation system treats every individual independently. They come in, they, they get featureized and some recommendations are made. Mm -hmm. And I might recommend a certain movie to that person. And you know, next the next day someone else comes in, I, I featureize them. I might recommend the same movie. And I might recommend the same movie to 100,000 people today out of the million that come to my site. That's not a problem because there's no scarcity. The movie can be copied as many times as I want. Yeah, totally. But if you get into more real world things, I'm recommending um, streets to go down, for example, paths. You know, I'm going to create congestion if I don't take the decisions, uh, dependencies into account. Uh, if I'm recommending, uh, you know, restaurant seats, I'm trying to create a market in a city that, you know, all the restaurants, the owners make bids for people to occupy their seats yeah. and people accept or reject the bids. If I make each decision independently, then I'm going to get, you know, maybe 100,000 people got recommended the same restaurant and it's going to be oversubscribed. So instead of trying to create a system that does all the load balancing, because that's not going to work, I'm not going to know people's real preferences and what they're really going to choose. Right. So I make it into a market. I make bids and asks and I have prices and I, you know, say for 10 minutes, you have an offer to come to this restaurant at a 10% discount and you can accept or reject. We have a kind of transaction. So that kind of system can start to load balance, but it can do lots of other things. It's a market and you can create markets in worlds like uh, entertainment. Like I can create a market for uh, all the people who are making music and all the people who are listening to music. That's, we don't have such a market right now, but yeah. there's data now. You know, that data flows. If, you, if I listen, if you make music on the weekends and upload it to SoundCloud and I listen to it, there's been a data flow, but ha that hasn't been turned into an economic transaction. So you don't know that I listen to your music. If, if you can know if there's a market created, then you can start to monetize that. And that's a good word. <laughs> monetize it means that you uh, can have a career making music. And right now people can't have a career making music. So AI in that sense, and again, I don't like to use the term, but I just did. AI can create jobs if you think of it as creating markets yeah. and not, not, not just creating systems that are on a virtual platform. So that opens all kinds of interesting economics questions. How do you build a, rec a recommendation system that has got a, a market side to it, that it's got it's a two-way market, that you have the producers and consumers and, and so on? So there are lots of situations like that where data analysis can only go forward if there's been a market incentive for someone to provide data yeah. and a market incentive for someone to use that data in a certain way. That's where I'm currently focusing most of my attention. Yeah. So how do you cultivate those incentives? Oh, that's easy. I mean, just there's a, people have utility for certain kind of outcomes. So if I, for example, want to incentivize people to share data, yeah. it sounds like a good thing. In certain domains, you know, if you were to share data, like in fraud detection or in medicine, 
you know, you'd get an overall better outcome. Well, you incentivize them to share data by saying, you know, send me some data. You can, you can add, you can privatize it in any way you want or send me, just take a subset of your data, but I'll put it together with other people's data and then we'll see what, you will see what boost you get. I will see what boost you get by providing your data. Mm-hmm. Then I can, um, I can be a central site that collects data and I can build a super model and I will not reveal that model to anyone, but I will, re- I will give you, once you start later querying that model, I can give you an answer which has noise added to it that's inversely proportional to the quality of the data you gave me. So if you gave me high quality data, which I can assess by looking at holdout, then I can, um, I can see that you gave me high quality data. I will give you an uh, answer to your query, which has no noise added. Yeah. But if you gave me bad data, I'm going to give an answer to the query where I add a lot of noise. Yeah. And now you, you are going to see that result. You're going to see your error rates and you're going to see other people's error rates. And there's your incentive sitting right there. You see that the other person's error rate came down a lot because they gave higher quality data, you gave bad data, um, you got not such an improvement. So in the next round of the game, you're incentivized to give better data. You're not doing it just because there's some rule that you should give data or that it's a good thing to give data. It's, it, it, there's just a, there's a benefit. I set it up so the benefit's co- co- uh, connected to the decision. So I'm using data analysis to do the holdout to evaluate it, and I'm, and I'm creating an incentive just by ta- tagging, making a connection between data and, and, and the benefit. So that, that, that kind of style of thinking can go much further. What applications are you thinking about for implementation? I mean, this style of thinking is, it comes out of, you know, going around and looking at what companies do and what thinking about and just reading the newspaper, you know, and just thinking about what are some open areas that haven't been fo- focused on enough. You know, so here I could certainly spin stories of applications, but I just think it's kind of obvious, right? It, yeah. it, you know, when it, like the music one. There's data flows out there. People listening to music. People don't have the market set up. You know. If you were to set it up, it would it would you know give economic value to people. And so, are there intellectual challenges? Well, sure. I bet you if I start building that system right now, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's going to require thought. So, as an academic, one can do that thought kind of a priori. You can think, you think it through a little bit, and you can build a prototype system, perhaps. I also like to work with real systems people. That's what I focused on at Berkeley. And so, build even more than a prototype. Try to actually build something that does the job at some level. Applications partly drive what I do, but I don't, I don't tend to have the time to kind of really get out and mostly just do the application. Happy to be part of an ecosystem where those things eventually come out. It feels like such a strong wedge. I mean, you could apply it to anything, right? There's, there's low-hanging fruit all over the place with huge impact. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. That's, that's, that's why it's an engineering field, just not just a math field. Well, Professor Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. It was really fantastic. My to pleasure. Have I'm going to take an Uber back, by the way, if you're interested in how my trajectory goes after yeah. from from here on in the rest Excellent. of my career. Cool. That's what it is. Wonderful. Yeah. If there's anything else you want to mention, talk about. Uh, there's papers on my website. I would read the blog post, I guess, that uh, you alluded to earlier. It's called Artificial Intelligence: The Revolution Hasn't Happened Yet. Yeah. And really, the message there is uh, is one of forward-looking optimism. Here's what the problems we can work on. The edge of it, though, is that if we don't work on them, we're going to kind of mess things up. And we're going to also have, you know, bad public dialogue, which we're already having. But we'll also kind of create expectations, which we're not going to be able to realize easily. And we're going to create some disasters. And we're going to then fix them after the fact. And somehow, I just don't want us to be going there. I want us to kind of be a little more upfront about our limitations, but then also more sober about what we can and can't achieve, and then a little slower as we try to you know, roll things out. Mike Jordan, I think it's putting it lightly to say a luminary in the field and kind of an amazing person. It was really an honor to get to talk with him. I was very lucky early in my career. I worked with him a little bit and, uh, yeah, and visited uh, him in Berkeley. And at the time, you go, we went to visit him, and at the time in his group was 
David Bly, Francis Bark, Yi Tay, Matthias Sager. Kind of an intimidating group meeting. <laughs> He's got such a passion for the mathematical side. And him and his collaborators, he's just got this track record of supervising students that have gone on to just do amazing things and also who have introduced super important ideas to the field. I sometimes think of the whole field as a consequence of the binary star system of Jordan and Hinton circling each other in a sort of and uh, creating gravitational waves. No, only when they collide. That's going to happen when they collide or something. Or creating sort of waves of uh, disturbance and innovation that sort of shake us all up. And maybe that, I don't know if that's become less true as the field's got larger. Well, that's it for us on this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. 